Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hi there and welcome to season four of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I work with clients to help them look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future so they can design better realities today. And today in our season opener, I'm incredibly excited to have Ian Burbage, the Head of Innovation and Change at the RSA with us. Ian's role is to develop programs of research and analysis focused on policy and practice across the public services and community sector. He has a background in public policy and partnership working and joins the RSA from local government. Here his work focuses on engaging communities in place shaping and problem solving with the statutory sector. Ian is particularly interested in how to cultivate innovation within public services and bring new approaches to old problems. And Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to join you today. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And um, we get, we're going to get into the RSA report that I read last year that brought us together uh, through a mutual friend, Billy Khan, called A Stitch in Time. But, you know, I really want to understand a little bit about your journey and how you sort of come to the world of foresight and about the RSA as a whole as well. Sure. Yeah. So I go back to uh, my roots in local government, which is where I started my career after a couple of um, sort of fake false journeys into, into a few different avenues before that. Yeah. Um, my, my degree, my original degree was in geography, uh, which, which I've heard disparagingly called the colouring in degree. Um, but for me, it's the strategic degree. It's the one that helps us understand people and place and the interaction of both, um, not just in the past, but actually also in the future. So I think, I think my interest in foresight goes back a long way. Um, and you know, if I tell it, if I tell a bit of a story about um, my my interest as well in archery, so this this is one of those tangents that I like to go sure. on. Yeah, <laughs> I got into archery because my my mum was into it. So I was a kid, um, really really enjoyed it. And uh, the thing that's the thing that's kind of curious and interesting about archery is, on the one hand, you think, well, all you got to do is pull pull the string back and let go of the arrow and aim for the middle of the target. And if you're good, they go in the middle more often than not. Um, but the the thing that really got me with 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 my practice around archery was the sudden realization that actually it's a quest for perfection. All you're trying to do is to bring your focus and your attention down to this moment right here and now, to shoot that arrow to the best of your ability and then to repeat that. And the only way that you could maintain a high level of performance in my experience was to be able to not think too far in the past with all the mistakes you might have made or uh, about how amazingly you were performing on that particular day. Um, nor to look too far into the future when you think, ah, oh, well, if I continue this current level of performance, I'm gonna end up with a personal best or whatever else. Um, and that led me down a bit of a, a bit of a sort of uh, an Eastern philosophical route as a, as a late teenager and exploring, you know, some of the principles behind um, Zen Buddhism and where they use archery as a, as a, as a means, as a route towards enlightenment. And so, so that, that really got me off on a, on a fascinating, you know, lifetime inquiry really about time and place and um, what it is to be human and, 
um, how you know how we need to balance both the forward look but also be really clear about when we need to focus our attention into the into the present into where we are and what we're trying to do in order to be the best that we can be and i guess i guess i've always sort of explored that tension through um yeah through my through my life through my career yeah. um and I'm not dwelling too much on the local government side of things because sure. local government is local government. It is what it is. I I worked for 15 years there, but again, I will come back. We'll come back to some of this, I'm sure. But sure, um, it was really it, it, it's, re- it's really interesting. I just wanted to interject. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting, especially when you talk about the Eastern philosophies and and thinking about meditation, enlightenment, and mm. reflection, and all these. Increasingly, I'm finding a lot of peers and colleagues and, 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 and people that I work with are really embracing that or they've been doing it for a long time. Mm. When you do chat to people that have been doing foresight or people that call themselves futurists, there's a lot of people. I mean, I've got a great friend, ben- Benjamin Butler, and, and he's very much on this. Uh, I come from a, a background of uh, of biohacking and really <laughs> pushing pushing the boundaries of of uh, of journeying and, and shamanic mm. journeying. So mm. I bring that to this and that idea that you can feel you know thousands of generations that came before you, and you can and you can project potentially thousands of generations ahead, right? Oh, completely. And and this is what what you know utterly fascinates me. There's, I. I I can't believe that I, I didn't come across Alan Watts until the last couple of years, but I've been right. reading some of his stuff and, and the way that he expresses like the, p- the potential of the moment right. being everything there was and everything there is, I, I just think is, is utterly fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our, our inquiry ultimately into, uh, you know, foresight and futures was, was <laughs> we, we ran the risk of veering off in all these different philosophical directions because they're so fascinating and, and, you know, they speak to, to what it is to be human, I think. Yeah, and even this year, I sort of started off by wondering about, you know, life on other planets or even, yeah. you know, I was, I was reading a report yesterday and it was like, maybe there was actually a civilization millions of years ago before us. And it's like, oh, these are existential interesting ideas you know i've been looking at a first nations philosophy uh, here in canada and in the us around seventh generation thinking mm. so the things that we do today need to be good for the next seven generations which is about 175 200 years or so right and and that long view has been something that a lot of people have been forgetting and again i've been listening to alan watts uh, like you have and i'm trying to find out you know if there's something wrong with what he's talking about and it's it's hugely reflective and it's and it's directional but it's not dictating to you how to think Mm. or how to see the world right it's just giving you Mm. a kind of a framework in which to to swim around and and experience lots of different moments completely yeah i completely agree and you know um this this is a challenge right to link this back to local government but um the thing the thing that really stood out for me i did a whole load of strategy and performance uh, and partnership working and I didn't have a language to describe what I was doing there necessarily but now yeah. I might call it like systems work I was trying yeah. to trying to understand you know why people were living under the most you know stringent of circumstances why poverty was showing up in some places and not others how might we address it what are the things we can do to tackle those those massively complex problems right um, and and you know the whole I don't know if it's the same in Canada. I'm, I'm not familiar with the Canadian system, but in the UK, as, as you'll know, it's massively centralised. Yeah. All the, all the power and resources are in in central government, 
Um, increasingly, that's been stripped out of local government. But the command and control mentality um, is, is, is so focused on, we know what's right. If only you get rid of the program, deliver it, everything will be fine. And it doesn't allow local responsiveness to local needs and local challenges and local circumstances and context. Yeah. It's, almost, it's almost like a blanket approach. And I, I think that, that that sort of founding, I've gone on a sort of a whole load of, of thinking and reading around, you know, colonialism and empire and the extent to which that feeds through the way that we still design and deliver our public services. So what I was seeing at the front end was what I would now describe as, you know, an outdated delivery model. It's based on command and control thinking. It's based on, uh, you know, an assumption that if only we disaggregate the problem uh, into sufficient parts, we can fix the parts and put them back together again and everybody will be fine. We know that doesn't work. Um, and yet, and yet it's still, um, you know, it, it's still the sort of philosophy with which we design and deliver our public services. All of, all of which is to say, you know, there's, I, I, I really, I really like this sort of Eastern idea of change as cyclical and continuous and the norm and the balancing out, um, you know, and, and that what happens is an emergent property of the component parts. I, all of that makes sense to me. My sort of geographical background makes sense of that bigger picture um, way of thinking about things. And yet, largely in the West, I think we still overplan. you know, we have a linear model of uh, trying to figure out what the problem is, then prescribing a solution. And, and then any, any failure to, to address the issue is always seen as a failure of implementation, not of diagnosis. You know, we just assume that, that the world can be sort of diagnosed. And, and so I had a sort of geographical framing. I had a bit of a, a sort of an Eastern world view and a bit of a, uh, you know, a, an individual us as change makers, sort of different conceptions of change through archery of all things. And then in local government, I just saw this real sort of mechanistic way of trying to do things, um, which, which to me just felt wrong. And, and I guess now I have a sort of way of describing that, that, that makes sense to me. And it's, I don't know, it's just strange how, how there can be such different approaches to, you know, the big challenges that we face in, in different parts of the world. So, so this seems like uh, the journey that you you did through everything from being young and doing archery all the way through, low, uh, you know, doing geography. Mm. And it's fascinating that you frame geography about you know the awareness of place, and I think it's the awareness of time and space yeah. And, yeah. And, and mental mental space and psychic space and a whole bunch yeah. of different stuff. Um, but like, really, it, it kind of seems like ending up at the RSA is a really good thing for you and your practice, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so this is like, I, I have, um, I always like to challenge and normally it's just in the, you know, the safe domain of my own mind or talking to my partner, uh, you know, why do we all get up stupidly early and force our kids into school at the same time? Or we all go on the roads and drive at exactly the same time or crush onto the tube to get to work. like like we're still sticking to old delivery models you know this right. is what i saw in local government there's an assumption that health is fixed best fixed in the hospital because you just get economies of scale well okay if if it's all broken arms and bones as a result of industrialization in the 1800s then that's one thing but you know we're dealing with complex comorbidities 
challenges like obesity or diabetes or whatever else it might be, mental health, these things need a really individual, individually designed response. Not, not one that you're going to get by going to a, a big building where everybody else is going. Yeah, so th th this is almost like, uh, this is endemic in public public um, sector and, and public services, right? So, mm. you know, we see it in healthcare, we see it in the policing, right? Yeah. Uh, we see it in the prison service, the prison probation services. It's, yeah. and, and there's a complete failure to understand that we're all individuals in the situation, right? And there's trauma and there's there, there are different routes of, yeah. of of realizing effective solutions right oh uh, exactly and like i would i would say something like poverty is you know it's an it's an emergent property of someone living in a complex massively complex and really tough set of circumstances so to have the sort of benefits regime we have in the uk where you know it's all about sanctions for not meeting criteria and eligibility rules it's like it's dehumanizing and, and it's a full-time job to simply engage with it. It's not an enabling response to someone who's in those kind of difficult circumstances. Yeah. So, so that was kind of all of my learning, just looking at how different parts of the public sector rub up against each other, sometimes yeah. effectively, sometimes counterproductively in local places. And then I did, um, I did something which, which I'm a massive advocate for, right? Which is, um, just doing a complete about turn and seeing what happens in life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'd done loads of little micro experiments to sort of stretch my comfort with discomfort and then decided it was time to move on. So I handed in my notice five years ago without really knowing what I was going to do next. Right. But I just felt like I needed to do something differently. Yeah. Um, and I thought the only, the only way I'm going to figure this out is by forcing myself to figure it out. It's too comfortable to keep going, doing the same thing every day. Yeah, it, sometimes it's difficult to just, I've did exactly the same. I've done that that five times in my life. You know, awesome. I've stopped and I've <laughs> written some music, right? That no one was really ever gonna hear for six months or I've stopped and done a ski season. And you know, yeah, like six, six years ago, I quit my job to do what I'm doing today and didn't get paid for like 18 months, right? So <laughs> it, it's one of those things, but like, I'm happier. I'm exploring. I'm pushing boundaries. I'm still pushing boundaries today, and yeah. Yeah, micro yeah. experiments with a whole bunch of different things. Right. So, how did you end up at the the RSA and and in the position that you're in? Um, well, I was I was lucky enough that that they were just advertising a job which spoke to my public sector experience and background in the public services team. Yeah. Um, I'd been I t I I decided I could take four months off. And at the same time, I started doing a master's in behavioral science at LSE because what else are you going to do? It's like, well, I enjoy learning. Let's go learn some stuff. Yeah. And I, and I did that largely because I saw so much, um, so much effort going into helping people make changes in their own lives that were failing that I just thought I need to understand this a bit more. Let's do something behavioral. Um, and that, and that was brilliant. Um, saw the opportunity at the RSA and ended up starting there four or five months after I left local government. And so, how long ago was that, Ian? Well, I'll have done, I'll have done five years in May. So, oh, okay, great, yeah, great. So, so I left local government. I thought I've got six months to find something else and was lucky enough to find something in four, which was kind of cool. Uh, it's yeah. worked out brilliantly. But my backup plan, um, yeah, and this was the clincher for me. <laughs> I don't know I don't know about your, your sort of pivots, but 
when I realized that my worst case scenario was I just sold my house and sold my staff and went traveling for a couple of years, I thought, <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? <laughs> exactly. exactly. What's the but, worst that can happen? <laughs> yeah, the worst that can happen is you can take a job or you can just get rid of everything. Yes, a very, very similar sort of journey, journey in my life. I never quite, I sold a lot of my stuff once and lived and lived out of suitcases for, for a period of time to just pay for starting my business and you know yeah. the, the, these uh, these things are fun so okay you you in the rsa for for yeah. uh, around about five years yeah. and last year like just out of the blue for me comes this report a stitch in time and i'd never mm -hmm. really put the rsa and foresight and futurism sort mm -hmm. of in, in the same sentence I'd, I'd followed the rsa and obviously you know i've been to events there when i was uh, like working and living in the uk and uh, fascinating you know and it, we, yeah. the rsa covers a, a lot of uh, different territories but then this hugely valuable report 42 page report that goes into everything around you know realizing the value of futures and foresight which is sometimes really difficult even for professionals like myself to to do because you get to scramble around and look in academia and you know executives are like why should we bother doing this and it's a lot of its narrative and a lot of it's yeah. like case study and there's a lot of uh, disbelief that it's hugely valuable but but now we're starting to see that you know th this tools like this like for organizers policymakers and and society as a whole are incredibly valuable and i think people are really turning on to the idea of foresight being a capability, just as strategy, just as mm. accounting, just as you know, um, yeah. you know, finance, financial operations, or whatever in organisations, this is part of design. This is part of a, a bigger, a bigger solution and a really important perspective to get. And I'm working with tons of clients, so you know, can you talk to me a little bit about how you and the team came together and sort of came up with the mm. idea of a stitch in time? Uh, as a report and uh, what the process was of putting it together. Yeah, sure. So my, my role at the RSA um, morphed from the public services team into um, a chunk of my time was going into what, what we called the RSA lab. So we were building out our approach to social change a bit more systematically, trying to draw on all of the learning that we had from across our work and bring it together into a range of um, you know, techniques and methods and approaches to support change makers in their work. And the RSA at its heart is uh, for, for um, your audience who probably haven't heard of it, um, is the long title of the RSA is the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. It was founded in Covent Garden Coffee House in London in 1760s. So it's 260 something years old. Uh, it's a long standing um, body and it's always been um, charged with and trying to bring about. Um, social change, tackling the issues of the time, whatever they might be. Um, we talk at the moment about trying to unite people and ideas, like how you can bring together some of the best, most compelling ideas out there with people that are trying to create change in their own worlds, environments, contexts. Um, and we have uh, just over 30,000 RSA fellows. So that curious thing on LinkedIn where you see after people's name, it might say FRSA means that they're an RSA fellow and um, anybody can apply to be a fellow. Uh, and there's more information on our website at drsa.org. Um, but we've got 30,000 globally. Um, I think about two thirds, three quarters are in the UK, um, but we do have a global presence. We have a, a US uh, affiliate and that's led by Alexa Cray. Um, so that's kind of like the framing of the RSA. And, then, and so my job was trying, trying to mine some of the insights that have come out of that work. 
and sort of bring together into, into an approach um, how we go about supporting people create change, whether it's individuals, institutions, whether it's public bodies or private sector companies or whatever. Um, and that was the work that, that I've been leading on. Um, we've always had that sort of longer term perspective, uh, but it's probably been a bit more implicit than explicit in our work until uh, a few years ago, we did a piece of work called The Four Futures of Work, which... Oh which you might have come across. Um, I can share links to all of this if people sure. want to follow up. Um, but it looked particularly through a tech lens at what might happen um, to core sectors in the economy um, into the future. And so we did a sort of a morph morphological analysis and came up with four sort of contrasting scenarios. Um, and that was really placed us in, in, in that space, I guess. Um, and at the same time, we, I mean, the RSA, produces a journal that comes out a few times a year uh, and it was in one of those in I think 1980 that, that the word sustainability was first used in an environmental context for example so we've always had an environmental strand to what we've been interested in and so we're doing a lot of work at the moment around regenerative futures what it is to um, use resources in a regenerative as opposed to a, a sort of an exploitative um, way. So, so it's always like, I guess, foresight in futures has always been something that's been, like I say, implicit in what we're doing. And then we um, were lucky enough to secure a small bit of funding by, um, from Manchester Metropolitan University uh, to just do a bit of a deeper dive. And the brief really was to look at what does foresight and futures mean for policymakers. And we were kicking this off, you know, our conversations were at the back end of um, 2019, early 2020. So COVID was on the horizon, but it wasn't the driver for doing right. this bit of work. It was sort of serendipitous that we were doing it ultimately at the same time as that, that became uh, such a big, a big challenge. Um, but then we supplemented that funding with some with our own internal resource, put, put, put a bit of a team together because we felt it was worth exploring. You know, once you start scratching the surface of something and you suddenly go, oh, hold on, this is kind of interesting and cool. Right. I, I want to go a bit deeper here. Yeah. So, so we got a bit of additional resource to do that. And so that's how that how that piece of work came about. Um, and and I guess I guess for me, the the like the purpose was as someone that previous to that hadn't really dug into foresight and futures in in a in a sort of you know in a in a deep way i, th I think i just felt that I, I guess i see myself as a generalist i've accrued experience and i've accrued a different broad range of skills but i've never followed a particular career path and so i could really see the value of understanding a bit more about um, some of these methodologies and approaches and what it can bring to people as part of either a change making effort or business development effort or you know what how you might embed that in people's core work and and so that was that was the, the brief and how we started to get that piece of work moving yeah how did you uh how did you um involve people that are already out there in in, in sort of uh foresight practices and uh looking at you know innovators and change makers and mavericks and all sorts mm. of people how did you find how did you find all these people did you all sit down and say well, okay here's the subjects we want to look at oh we need some external expertise to feed in yeah, this was one of the areas where we where we ended up um, expanding our research right. uh, with with a bit of internal support because a couple of things happened. Um, we we just tapped into a desire amongst people to talk to us, and right. so we found that there were some massively influential um, futurists, if you like, within the RSA fellowship 
So right. people like Wendy Schultz, we yeah. had an initial interview with Wendy and she was like, well, let me tell you who you need to speak to. <laughs> right. And so it became a bit of a snowball effect. So, so we were really blessed to talk to some amazing people who then put us in touch with others. Um, and and it, just, it just grew. We just had people wanting to talk to us and we were keen that we got a breadth of perspectives uh, so far as we could um, within our resource. Um, and, and, and I think it's one of those things, you know, it's a bit like when you suddenly buy a, a blue car, you suddenly realize how many blue cars there are in the world. Um, once we started digging a bit into longer term thinking and the role of foresight in futures, um, we just, the more we looked, the more we saw. <laughs> and yeah. so our eyes became open to it, I think, in that respect. But this is also about keeping it simple as well, right? Mm. Because um, yeah, I love Wendy's work, and I've, I've attended a couple of her online workshops in the last year, and um, like, and I follow tons of people. Twitter is great to follow; mm. incredible yeah. futurists out there and foresight thinkers, and it's you know, it, it's an active conversation. I love it, and um, this is where I, I meet such a lot of people for for the podcast that I put together and, and the work that I do. I've got lots of friends um, in in the world that, that do this work now, but but. This, this sort of curiosity and this this kind of uh, vim and vigor to get involved. But there, there are so many different ways of slicing the pie, right? Yeah. Or looking to the futures and methods and people yeah. that have got frameworks. I've got a framework I use, but it's super simplified based on a bunch of different things, um, based mm. on the work that I've done, because I've tried to explain the futures cone. And I've tried to explain <laughs> all sorts of different things about three horizons and whatever. And you yeah. kind of have to work with executives. They're like, do you know what? Tell me the one thing I can do in a project to help us do foresight. And it yeah. needs to be simple uh, and whatever. And it seems like your document, and I sort of, I'm looking here, which is sort of the, the, the circle uh, of society organizations and policymakers, right? Mm. Um, that and, and I'll share this in the article that I'm going to put together around this uh, this 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 chat, um, where you can sort of reorientate ourselves of how to think about long term, and that just boils it down, and it's beautiful, and that's what I think mm. I I really liked about this. So you know, w was it a case of you know, you've got a thousand reference points, and then how do you decide to get down into something that's inherently useful? Uh, I guess that's I guess that's the art of trying to make sense. <laughs> make sense right, of exactly. Um, but you're right. And I guess there's a couple of things that I had in the back of my head. One is um, I, I would always imagine what would have been useful for the kind of senior managers that I were working was working with in local government or in the housing sector or the education sector or a head teacher. Um, and so I was always trying to figure out how can I distill this down into something that is useful, like easily accessible and useful. And I think I think doing doing my behavioral science masters, there, there was a difference between those of us that were doing the course because we wanted to basically codify a series of insights and behavioral approaches that could be sold to market versus those that were trying to integrate those insights into their existing knowledge and what they already knew. And I was in that latter camp. And, I, and so when we approached the foresight work, I was really keen to find the value for generalists, as I described myself earlier, um, people who are already stretched, busy, doing a tough job, where's the value for people in, in those circumstances? And so for me, that was a lens that I used to try and distill the insights we were gaining um, into 
hope, as you say, hopefully, a, you know, a relatively accessible infographic and then some supporting content that brings that to life a little bit. So if you are, um, you know, we, we talked about policymakers and, and the future's mindset, but actually we're all policymakers in our own lives, in our own community. So it's about the individual. We talked about uh, a sort of, you know, society and how you embed a future's culture and a longer term perspective. Uh, and, and then around organizations and competencies that are, that are valid for, for organizations. So, so that was kind of the process it was always, how do we make this helpful for people? Right. <laughs> um, and I guess the other thing we really quickly recognized as you, as you described is, you know, there are a million different models and frameworks and toolkits. Uh, all of that exists and you can download those, you can look at them, you can figure them out for yourselves. And so we didn't want to replicate that. In fact, we signposted to a number of them in one of the appendices. So this was again, part of just trying to boil down the value for people and not, not you know, it, it, there were amazing people doing amazing work like you and others in this field. We didn't want to step over that, but we wanted to almost offer uh, a gateway into that world for people like me who previously hadn't perhaps known that much. Yeah. Uh, you know, didn't even know that world existed. Yeah. Uh, and I guess like one final point um, to, to sort of conclude this, but is we were really struck by how many people we spoke to uh, had a, a story a bit like yours, you know, this is what I did. I, I've pivoted this, I've done that. Yeah, people who I might describe as a polymath or who are almost experts in a number of different fields. Mm. Very few people were pure sort of, uh, you know, foresight practitioners. Or, or, you know, if that's what they were doing in a job now, they'd previously done a whole load of other stuff beforehand. And so, and so that was also where we were sort of honing down on, on the notion of um, this is just about equipping people. Like if you're running a business of any size or you're trying to, you know, convene a community around a local challenge or whatever else it might be, this stuff could be helpful. Right. And so it's trying to trying to make that an easy an easy entry point for people to get through. So has this, has it? Well, I, I think foresight's like an iceberg, right? You, you see mm. the little bit at the top, and I think that this is like the tip of the iceberg, and it's awesome mm. because it, it boils it down or freezes it down, right? And then <laughs> everything is underneath ninety percent of everything, and you know we all use these crazy frameworks and ideas and whatever, and it's based on on the wisdom and experience that we've all had. But um, so you talk about equipping people, and that's awesome. How's this? How's this document had a life of its own? Um, had, you know, have you? Is it? Is it led to the RSA working with companies to? Um, to, to, you know, countries and companies, organizations, you know, even government uh, in certain, mm. certain aspects sort of reaching out to, to really work with the, these frameworks and ideas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's landed really well. We've yeah. been, we've been surprised how well it's landed. I mean, even people like your good self reaching out and saying, I love this stuff. It's like, it's really gratifying to hear. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's gone down really well within the community of, you know, practitioners, which was something we were quite nervous about. Another reason why we weren't, we weren't trying to, you know, have a repository of, of how you do stuff yeah. in the document because people have already nailed that. We were, we were trying to, like I say, bring bring it to life a little bit. And, and I think I think that's landed well. It's landed well across different disciplines. Um, in, in terms of how we might be taking that forward, the thing, the thing that, that I always find fascinating is, is that ripple effect. You drop something out there, you never quite know right. where that's going to. 
we made a recommendation, for example, that organizations should have a chief foresight officer or equivalent role at, at, at sort of C-suite or executive level. And then somebody reached out to me to say, and this was one of my um, uh, local government colleagues to say, I'm the chief foresight officer for this particular local authority. It's like, okay, so some of this stuff is landing and people are acting with it and working with it. So, so that for me is like fascinating to see and to hear about. And, and a lot of what we do is about trying to seed change that ultimately we might not hear about. Um, people have approached us, particularly across the fellowship, who are interested because they're either already active practitioners or because it's just hit a chord. And generally fellows are curious people and they, they are, you know, they are um, polymaths or people that are drawing on experience from a breadth right. of different perspectives. We, and so we're trying, like one of our next steps is to um, continue to push the report and its content and disaggregate it a bit and make it more accessible and convene a, a, a fellowship, um, a network, not just the fellows, but others that are interested in this space to sort of continue a conversation. Yeah. And, and those conversations are really important, I think, in terms of futures and foresight and perspectives. And I mean, you, you, you talked about, you know, the ideas of colonialization and, you know, rigorous, but very sort of strict systems and, you know, one size fits all. And, you know, I, I, I kind of see foresight practitioners as the people that are like punching their way out of the paper bags in a way mm. and sort of uh, show, showing the people that are stuck in the systems that, you know, maybe there's something to see out there. And it, some Sometimes, and I've I found this when I when I've done keynotes, people are shook because they, they they've literally you know lived in their world. I had one girl come up to me, and this was with the Institute of Public Administration of Canada in uh, in Toronto. I did a did a keynote. It was a thirty minute keynote, and this girl came up to me and she says, "I can't work. In, I can't work in government anymore." <laughs> and she was like, I, like I, I, I just can't work in government anymore. Like that I'm not going to be able to see this world. Anyway, six months later, I'm at the University of Waterloo and I was helping out with their um their innovation conference. And she pops up and she was like, Oh hey Nick, how are you? And I was like, Yeah, I'm good. How are you? She goes, Yeah, so I did quit and now I'm doing a master's in uh, technical entrepreneurship. Thanks for thanks for your talk and giving me the push to see something else is possible. Awesome. And I think that's what this report does, and that's what the RSA has done for hundreds of years. And mm. and you know, the practitioners and fellows within there and 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 what I try to do on on a sort yeah. of a, a, a daily basis is yeah, this is going to be uncomfortable. The future is inconvenient. Um, mm. And you know what? Pat, let, let, let's look at pandemics, okay? Mm. It's hugely inconvenient to think about a world where there's a global pandemic and it's going to shut everything down. So what happened? Everyone ignored that, except for the countries that didn't. Um, so, you know, Taiwan is fully open and things are rocking. China is... Because they, they basically... Things things happened. They locked it down. They took it seriously. Civic yeah. duty, pub, public policy and leadership. And the places in the world where it's been challenging, Canada, US, UK, mm. loose loose ideas and loose guidelines and gray areas and no empowerment and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, completely. And I mean, we passed a hundred thousand deaths like yeah. yesterday, which, yeah. which is, is, is just utterly mind blowing. Yeah. Utterly mind blowing. And, and I think the, the idea that there is an alternative to your example of, of the lady that quit government, like, 
I don't know. It, it's, it's almost like the, you, you need to see the world a different way in order to realize that an alternative is possible. And we get so caught up in our habits and the way we do things, you know, it, it's almost inevitable that people will always go to work the same way, the same route, the same mechanism, the same time. It's like we're creatures of habit. Yeah. And what I love about um, some of Rebecca Solnit's writing around disaster, um, I think her book's called The Paradise Built in Hell. It's an amazing read, but this notion that crises destabilize all of those ties that bind us, that hold our day-to-day, month-to-month habits in place. And it's only when those are broken that change becomes possible. And I think I think the same goes for when you suddenly see things a different way. You know, when you realize that actually we still have like all of the way that we that we think about and organize work is based and school is based on outdated paradigms and yet it's almost too difficult to change and so my hope if there's positive learning from covid because it's breaking all of those ties is that it's a chance to redesign things in a way that's more fit for purpose yeah i've been researching and i've been doing this for a number of years anyway um i run an event called dark futures which is like the black mirror of ted talks been doing about six years (laughs) so it's like 15 15 minute (laughs) presentations on like the hidden systems the stuff that's kind of screwed up and i'm actually now i'm very seriously researching the area of designing dystopia and dystopias so that we can start to see all of the problems that could happen with terrible decision making today you know mm. the, the things that will be wrought on the on the on the world so mm. i'll check out that book uh the, um the paradise built in hell and who who is the author of that book it's it's rebecca solnit she yeah. looks at she looks at you know she describes this thing called um elite elite panic when people that were previously in charge had the power and the resources are reduced to the same level as everybody else. She uses Katrina as an example of how the, the, the bite back by the elite, the elite is normally um, more devastating than the actual incident itself. It's, it's a fascinating read. Yeah, there's no. people like Douglas Rushkoff I've been following since the 90s and there's books Siberia and a number of books since then. Mm. And he sort of talks about this time when he was hired to do a talk and he lit, was ushered into this room where there were 10 billionaires asking, you know, when should they build their bunkers? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely the wrong idea, you know, and yeah. he was like bemused by it, but it also tells us a lot that, yeah, that elite <laughs> panic or, you know, how do we keep all the money? You know, exactly. so at the, at the, in the end of times, we've still got all our money. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, the yeah. value of a tin of baked beans is actually uh, worth more than a, a, a Gucci bag, let's be honest, <laughs> in, in those times. Okay, yeah. and it's been it's- absolutely fascinating to have this conversation. I, I'm sure that we're going to have another conversation at some point as this sort of evolves. Um, is sure. there any sort of sort of final words that you want to share with uh, the listeners of, of the podcast and, and where they could sort of find some more resources? Mm. Yeah, I mean, let me let me just sort of draw things to a close in this way. Then um, yeah. this notion of East versus West, I'm I'm curious that some of those countries that have responded well not only have had test runs with pandemics, SARS, and and the like previously in the last twenty or, or so years, but I think I'm I'm curious as to the the extent to which that sort of circular changes as normal mindset actually enables a better response whereas what we see over here certainly in in the uk government is much more of a like we have to command and control our way out of this it's an event to be to be managed and 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 it's proved like covid is proving that that just does not work when you're dealing with something as emergent as 
as the coronavirus. It's like, how dare it mutate? Well, you know, that's kind of normal. <laughs> that's right. what happens. And, and that's what I mean when I talk about this sort of colonial mindset. If only we command and control the people that we're, um, you know, that we're ruling, then everything will be fine. And, yeah. and like my ultimate hope, and I think this is, you, you know, is, is that we can shift away from that mindset. And I think foresight in futures as a, uh, you know, as a practice and a discipline is one way of trying to rethink those challenges without the need for a massive pandemic to force that that level of change. So that that would be that would be my hope. I mean, there's a load we could dig into around yeah. around the report itself, and and maybe we we do a follow up on that. Um, but uh, yeah, that that for me is 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 really fascinating in terms of of how we create change. Yeah, it's interesting, and and Davos has been happening, right? The World Economic Forum. Mm. Yeah, Greta Thunberg like tore them a new uh, a, a new opening the other day because you know massive yeah. interaction, the elite, blah blah blah. Um, yeah. But Xi uh, Jinping, all uh, right, came up. And uh, he was literally saying it's time to end this mindset, a Cold War mindset. Um, we're, we're in competition to, to gain excellence and together we can do that. And it's kind of interesting looking to the East. And mm. someone said this to me, um, the Chinese think in hundreds and thousands of years. Mm. And, and the only way you can do that is to think cyclically. And whether you're you're in a totalitarian system or a democratic system, or whatever, you can still have that cyclical ability to have that long view. And I think that that is a super interesting point. And I, I would love to have a follow on conversation um, to this, Ian, uh, maybe after we sort of delved into, uh, you know, more about what this report can do, um, may, maybe in a couple of months, sit down and say, okay, let's get into it. And maybe bring a couple of other foresight practitioners in for a bit of a a chat um that would be that would yeah. be awesome yeah that would be that, awesome that'd be the, great for sure the 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 things that i'm left with are you know covid has broken those ties that bind us that, that yeah. hold our routines and habits in place you, you and i broke them in order to pivot into a different direction but that's tough and it's hard and it's it's easier to stick with the status quo and the default and i and, and so for me that like there's just something about how we can reimagine the future in a way that enables us to perhaps, um, you know, surf the wave a bit rather than feel that we're on a on a treadmill. Um, and 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 ultimately, it was just fascinating to tap into what felt like a bit of a movement around long termism, not you know, in business, in public sector, uh, in all sorts of domains. It just feels like it's becoming more of a thing. I mean, I should recognise my sort of Western perspective on all of this. I know, yeah. as you referenced earlier, there are indigenous traditions that, for for whom, you know, the notion of, you know, a, a relationship with the land and resources that that has to provide for seven or more generations is is inherent in everything that they say and do. And 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 this is but one crisis. If we're talking COVID, you know, there are you 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 mentioned the climate crisis there's all sorts of others around wealth inequality and health inequality and uh, you know other other countries are facing their own their own crises to resolve and i guess for me uh, how we might learn from this how we might take a longer term perspective on that learning and apply it more mindfully has to be a massive opportunity for all of us and how we convince uh, the general populace that this is a good idea to think long term, and mm. the, 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 the you know, 
Uh, you, you know what? What is it? Um, Wendell Berry, very famous. He's a farmer and a, a poet. I'm not sure mm. if you know who Wendell Berry is. He says, like, plant sequoias, you know. Uh, the, we, we will not see the forests that we, yeah. that, that, that we, that, that we lay the seeds of, right? Um, and I've sort of completely mashed up that quote. But that's what it is. It's like yeah. if you plant a good idea and a way of thinking and establish a new system or a new cultural norm, then it's going to ripple through the ages. And I think that we need to, to bear that in mind. And I think on that point, we will uh, wrap up the podcast. And I'd like to say, Ian, um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk again. I, I, I'm, awesome. I'm pretty sure that this, this chat's going to have a really good reception. I'm looking forward to sort of spreading the word a little bit more about a stitch in time and sharing it with my clients and, and people that don't know about it. But um, thanks to you. Thanks to the RSA for this initiative and, and, uh, and, and working with that. And, uh, and also, it was, it was Manchester. Um, let, let's get this right. Um, uh, who, who was it? Uh, it was Manchester. Man Manchester Metropolitan University gave us some funding towards it. Right, yeah. So so them as well. Um, it, this is hugely important work. There's going to be more work about this. I mean, I work on Foresight every single day with my clients. Um, mm. It sounds like you and the team are really pushing boundaries. And uh, yeah, the future episodes of uh, the Exponential Minds podcast are, are going to delve into a lot of the things that we tapped into today. So Ian, Ian Burbage, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate things. I know you're incredibly busy and I look forward to chatting to you again. Nick, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to chat. Okay, thank you.